You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello and welcome to Middle East Analysis Extra, because it hasn't even been a month since uh, we were last on air talking to you. Joined by our regular studio guest, Dr. Harry Hagopian, down the line, not in the studio in these rather odd times. And to be honest, in these rather tragic times, if you have any sort of a heart for Lebanon and its people, because as if they weren't suffering enough at the moment, we had the catastrophic warehouse explosion in the port area of the capital Beirut. Some say, in fact, a quarter of the power of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima, such was the, uh, the explosive power there. That was Tuesday, the 4th of August, a little over a week ago. And um, apparently many people knew that this ammonium nitrate was stored somewhat insecurely in, in the port area in a warehouse. Many, many developments, which I'm sure Dr. Harry Hagopian will go into since that, that fateful day. Lebanon's Prime Minister, Hassan Diab, and his government have stepped down. I believe he was only elected in January. And he even said that, in his view, corruption in the country is bigger than the state. And of course, obviously, there's been massive public unrest off the back of this and, and the current climate in Lebanon anyway before that. Oh, where to start, Harry? Uh, thank you for joining us will be my first point. My pleasure, James. And I agree with you. It is one of, in my opinion, it is one of the saddest interviews or conversations that you and I have had because... Looking at the pictures, anybody who looks at the pictures or spends some time on YouTube or on the telly to look at what's happened as a consequence of this huge blast would no doubt realize that this is a vibrant country that has been sapped once more of its energy and whatever remained of its joie de vivre. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, to be honest with you, when, when the blast hit, I wasn't a million miles away. I was on a Greek island in the Dodecanese, so you know, a few hundred miles perhaps. And, um, you know, as, as is the way these days, the pictures quickly on social media circulated and uh, it made me feel sick, to be honest. Such was the power and the devastation caused. I'm going to start with this question, Harry, because, you know, when, when one is not informed and you, you hear things such as, you know, people have been aware of this storage, insecure storage of ammonium nitrate for seven plus years, you start to think, well, is it terrorism? You know, is it a particular group with a particular interest to cause yet further devastation on Lebanon and its people? Was it really firecrackers, in fact, that, that lit up that ammonium nitrate? I mean, what do we know, Harry? What caused this tragedy? It's very interesting, the question that you raised and the way that you raised it, James, because nobody really knows for sure, except probably a very small number of people, exactly what happened and how did it happen. I know that when the explosion first happened on the 4th of August, uh, the first immediate version that was uh, sent out was that some firecrackers which were in hangar number 12 in the port in Beirut had somehow caught fire and then after that the story developed that that fire uh, then impacted, affected some ammonium nitrate which had been kept in that particular hangar for the last six years and that is the one huge uh, explosion uh, that ripped uh, through many neighborhoods of uh, Lebanon. But then a lot of people found that story unconvincing. And think people have said lots of different 
uh, things. Those who have maintained that this was an accident, that this was unavoidable in the sense that nobody, uh, there was no foul play. And then there are others who said, no, there is far more to this than meets the eye. It was not, what do you mean, firecrackers? It was Israel which had basically attacked the hangar, whether knowing or not knowing that there was ammonium nitrate because they were targeting their intelligence information which said that there were uh, rockets in that hangar kept there by the Hezbollah uh, militia group. There were others who said, no, it's an internal thing. People even said there are some very well-known Arab intellectuals and observers who said that they were the rockets that were there were being attacked as Hezbollah was transporting them. And then the first initial blast of those rockets is what impacted the ammonium nitrate, which in a very sort of uh, uh, stable state is used by many countries as a fertilizer. But once it degrades and becomes combustible, then it can uh, produce this huge explosion. So there are many, many uh, stories that are still circulating in Lebanon and across the world uh, so many days uh, after the, the blast happened. I don't think many of us will know the real story now, but uh, I suspect that when there is smoke, then surely there is fire applies, and that could be used both cynically and uh, less cynically. What I would ask at this stage is, why was that ammonium nitrate kept there for those six uh, years? Why had no Lebanese government, there have been successive governments with successive prime ministers over the past six years, why had they not acted on it? What was the reason for keeping it there? Was the whole uh, amount that is being claimed, 2,750 tons, was it all there or had some of it already been taken out as some politicians and observers in Lebanon claim and that the explosion was only for half that amount? All these questions are at the moment still very much uh, speculation and conjecture. And to be honest with you, much as it would interest me to know exactly what happened, did Israel play a role? What were, if any, uh, rockets by Hezbollah doing there in the port? Because who are the people who were dealing with it? Because for the people who know the port, it's also known, funnily enough, as the cave of Alibaba and the 40 thieves. Because a lot of people say that this is where a lot of the clandestine, intriguing uh, plots happen. So basically, an explosion, a blast that has uh, caused damage, which is estimated at 15 billion, that's with a B. For me to basically get stuck on the point of who did it and why did it happen and why and wherefore, at this stage, I'm far more interested in the present and the future than basically going over the past six years. Well, obviously, in the second part of this Middle East analysis extra, we will look at the, uh, you know, what comes next, look at the context of this. But just now, I think it's important to acknowledge that over 170 people have died. And miraculously, I think, in a way, because it surely could have been a lot more than Indeed. that. Indeed. 
6,000 injured and countless thousands displaced, I am sure. So there's a huge human cost here. Not, as, as not countless uh, people displaced. Uh, James, you gave exact numbers, at least to date, about the dead and the wounded. There are 300,000 uh, 300, Lebanese who've been made homeless by this blast, by this explosion, of which 100,000, one-third are children and these people are going around without workplaces without homes without anything to eat and a lot of the neighborhoods that were hit and that were devastated are very well-known neighborhoods in Beirut, like Marm Khail, like Jemaize, like Ashrafiye, which also happen to have a lot of uh, uh, the Christian Lebanese and less so Sunni Muslim Lebanese people living there. And why am I introducing this? I'm not introducing this in any attempt to make this sectarian, but only to show that when we have had in the past any signs of violence or flare-ups, it's always been focused on the west side of Beirut, which is stereotypically known as Muslim Beirut, whereas the east, which also is stereotypically known as Christian Beirut, has not always figured in the headlines. This time, the blast really basically managed to wreak havoc in all those places that that are quite well known. The number of times I've passed by there is phenomenal, and uh, this makes me realize how uh, precious life is, because this could have happened very easily when I was there on one of my visits to this wonderful country. Well, I'm glad you were precise on that because I didn't want to get the figure wrong. But obviously, you know, a third of a million just about is a huge number with 100,000 children displaced on top of the 170 dead and 6,000 injured. That is the human cost. You sent me a film of a hospital in central Beirut with its several hundred cameras. And I literally my jaw hit the floor seeing the, the blast and the aftermath you know, sweeping through literally that hospital. And I've seen as well, on, on a more sort of, I suppose, positive note, I, I saw um, a particular piece that showed an altar in a church very close to the blast zone where the candle kept burning and the altar was unaffected as the rest of the church was sort of, you know, ripped apart, as it were. So, you know, many, many eyebrow-raising moments, many tears, much feeling of, of, of heartache off the back of this. But I wonder if you think, Harry, that this is a good time to introduce one of those famous songs, indeed, by the Lebanese Christian diva Feyrouz, who you often talk to me about, off mic as well, because one of her songs has become pretty emblematic, hasn't it, of this disaster? I think it would be very nice to share it, uh, James, with our listeners, because Feyrouz is a global phenomenon, She's certainly also a Lebanese phenomenon. And this song that you will play or parts of it has become emblematic of the whole blast because it talks about Salam on Beirut, peace for Beirut is in my heart. And I think it's a very moving song that she wrote many, many years ago. And if people who speak Arabic can listen to the lyrics, but anyway, those who speak Arabic would know it already. But those who understand Arabic, if they were to listen to the lyrics, it's a very sad song of the darkness and the gloom that is settling in on uh, Beirut and on uh, Lebanon. And uh, this blast is one such example. I've been in and out of Lebanon for many, many times. I've known Lebanon for a long time. 
I am very fond of the country, and despite the civil war, despite all the events that have happened, despite the assassination of former Prime Minister Rafir Hariri, I still think that this blast stands out as being something that has shaken people so that even well-known journalists and analysts who've been interviewed, they've just broken down in tears when talking about what has happened to Beirut, because it's a city that suddenly you see orphaned. And when you listen to Fairuz now, it's doleful and it reflects, it mirrors that sense of introspection and pain. Well, let's call Lebanon and its people to mind and, and just listen to a little bit of this. من قلبي سلام لبيروت وقبل للبحر والبيوت لصخرة كأنها وجه بحار قديم A little excerpt there from Feyruz and, and, as you say, doleful and, and very meaningful in context with, with this blast. So, Harry, you said prior to that that you were more interested in the present and indeed the future. So, so let's look to that now. Obviously, we've got the, the response, the politics, the aid, the, the, you know, the huge amounts of money going in. But I do worry a bit when it comes to aid for Lebanon that if you've got a prime minister stepping down saying that corruption is bigger than the state having many, many, many millions floating into the country, supposedly for good, how, how do we make sure that goes to the people that need it? Precisely. I mean, what our listeners should know um, also, James, is that for many, many decades, Lebanon has been identified with two fault lines. There is one that is the Western camp, and that probably includes the West, Saudi Arabia and Egypt and others. And then there is another fault line which is probably the Lebanese alongside Iran and Syria. And uh, when Macron, President Macron of France, came to Lebanon a couple of days after the explosion, and he basically talked about helping uh, Lebanon, he indirectly also addressed those two fault lines. And in so doing, he also touched upon the fact that the protests that have been going on the streets of Lebanon initially since the since october of 2019 basically all those protesters who challenged the legitimacy of the government of the ministers of all the people who've attempted but clearly failed to run lebanon and who said to him time and time again in french and in arabic they said Mr. President, whoever sends money, don't send it to those kleptocrats, don't send it to their cronies, don't send it to the uh, 
government institutions because like all other monies that have come into the country, they will disappear. And in a sense, this is the big question because you have those two fault lines and I believe also, but time will tell whether I'm right or wrong, there are other new fault lines that are actually uh, forming. For instance, it's very interesting to me that Turkey has hinted at its interest in helping Lebanon. And of course, there are those who are uh, pro-Turkey and those who are anti-Turkey in Lebanon. So all these things are coming uh, together. And at the moment, the Macron narrative, when he came there, he came a little bit like a savior stepping in to try and save Lebanon from itself. And although his his uh, uh, proposal to the Lebanese was never made public as far as I know. But the narrative was quite clear in that what he wanted to see, and I think in this he is also supported by some other countries, what he wanted to see is a national unity government which brings everybody together, all the different political parties together for a transitional period so that they would undertake some of the reforms and then have elections for parliament. This, in his opinion, would unblock the monies, the, uh, the monies that were negotiated or pledged for Lebanon uh, previously and recently, so that Lebanon can start the reconstruction uh, of the country. I'm not too sure that that is the best scenario. But having said that, and putting politics aside at the moment, because this is the a continual uh, story in Lebanon. Who runs Lebanon? How do you run Lebanon? How do you govern Lebanon? What about those warlords? What is the role of Hezbollah? Is it part of the Lebanese fabric and structure or is it uh, not? And uh, all these things keep coming. But the most important question is, if you're going to have millions upon millions, as you just said, how do you distribute this money? In fact, how do you prioritize the money that you're sending uh, to Lebanon? And in a sense, everybody is aware in the country that the protests in their, in their tens of thousands in the streets of Lebanon have been saying this time and again, that the decisions cannot be trusted to the government because the government are untrustworthy and a lot of them basically would not use the money for the reasons it's being sent. But at the same time, does Lebanon have the structure, the NGOs, the ability to use this money in order to help rebuild the country? And in a sense, I think eventually what might well happen is a mishmash of civil society, civic forums or hubs, alongside some of the government ministers or the new government that somehow reappears now that, as you said, the caretaker government cannot stay there forever in the day, and you cannot at the same time de-sovereignize, if I can use that word, the government, because at the end of the day, you need a structure of a state. How do you bring those two together, and how do you make this money count so that the country is rebuilt, so that the port might not be really rebuilt, but at least it becomes more usable. And at the same time, the structural reforms that the ordinary Lebanese need so much in order to get out of this mess 
in which uh, they're finding themselves. Those are questions that are to me, very unclear at the moment. And I still remain to be convinced that those analysts who are providing ready meal solutions are right. I think this is going to take still some time, but the next month or two would be key to show us in which direction Lebanon is going and whether it is finally going to come to its senses, whether those warlords, those ministers, those kleptocrats, those well-meaning people, describe them as you wish. How are they going to react and how is it possible to put together a government that will be in the interest of Lebanon, not in the interest of lining up the pockets of some uh, members of this community or that community, because at the end of the day, that's also part and parcel of where the problem is. Yeah, I agree. And they're, they're big questions. And let's be honest, not particularly easy questions to answer, I'm afraid. Um, but like with everything, Harry, we've talked about this so many times over the past decade, more than a decade. For instance, with the Ba'ath Party in Iraq, I think I've, I've said this before, but we, we, whenever we talk about either governmental corruption or failed elections or the need for a new direction, uh, you know, the self-determinism of the people, making sure that that is upheld, we often have to strike that note of caution, don't we? I mean, you know, is it better the devil you know? Should you be throwing out the whole thing and starting from afresh you have to be very very careful particularly in the middle east and north africa with what fills the void don't you absolutely you're right um james but i would say that at the moment given how things stand in lebanon and given the enormity of the blast the damage and devastation that it has wrought upon the country the fact that most of the ministers and politicians of all parties, whether you look on one side of the fence or on the other, have lost most of their legitimacy and most of their credibility, it is time, I think, to be a little bit innovative, to take a risk with those new people, those well-meaning people from civil society, from NGOs, from uh, universities, from the political field who have not actually had a role to play in running or governing the country, they should be empowered to try and and uh, put the country together. Remember, when Hassan Diab was initially brought into uh, his position as prime minister, he was supposed to bring together technocrats who would be who would steer away from politics and therefore try and run the country on a basically on for the benefit of the country and not the benefit of the politicians themselves. That has failed abysmally because Hassan Diab was basically seen as carrying the label of only one fault line of the two fault lines I've uh, mentioned to you earlier uh, just now. And in a sense, he was not credible. He became irrelevant. He was political window dressing. He's gone now. It is important to take a risk. And this is why when I said, and I was measuring my words, when I said that I'm not 100% in agreement with President Macron's narrative of a national unity government for a transitional period, leading to structural reforms, and then unblocking the Cedre and EU pledges that will come in their millions to help uh, the, the, the country. Why? Because it's been tried and tested all the time. 
bringing the old culprits together and putting them together in the same room and saying, you run it, you introduce the structural reforms, you do a transitional period that will take us to an election for the parliament. I mean, these people are not going to work against their own core interests, which is why it is important to find another solution. And it is important for the West and the international community whose priorities have not always been in line with the interests of uh, Lebanon. I mean, we talk about a lot of things there, the maintenance of the status quo in power, uh, the cover-up, as it were, you started with that question of the Beirut uh, explosion, the fact that we constantly talk about Lebanon's resilience, where that famous resilience after this blast has really been strained. And when you see people, ordinary citizens carrying brooms and cleaning the the offices, the workplace, coming and helping people in their damaged homes, you wonder where the state is. And when people talk to me about resilience of the Lebanese, which is famous, and I've used it myself, I would also flip that and say, yes, but there is also the resilience of all those uh, politicians and political elites who have Uh, refused to let go of power and think of Lebanon as the message, as the country, rather than Lebanon as their own backyard interests. But add to this the oil and gas element now, which is which has been going on for a while, and you would have thought that Lebanon would have been far more interested in that, given the fact that it's a bankrupt country, thinking of Israel's role in all of this, the priorities change. And this is why the protesters who came to the streets, who tried to occupy some ministerial departments and parliament, they didn't succeed. But what they were shouting for was revenge, justice, and they kept saying, just leave us alone. Of course, this is not practical also, because at the end of the day, any country needs a structure, whether it's a failed state or a wonderful state. But what it does uh, indicate is that the country has reached a level of desperation where new methods need to be uh, used rather than keep recycling the old methods in the hope of getting new results. Einstein said it, it's stupidity. I would say that at this stage, for the sake of Lebanon, a country so precious for many of us, and for those people who kept breaking down in tears when I watched them in webinars and in interviews, I think it is time to give Lebanon a chance to stand up on its own feet rather than cripple it with sectarian interests and uh, cronyism. So the status quo really is impossible to continue with, I think, is is kind of what you're saying. That is exactly what I'm saying. Thank you for defining my long uh, paragraph with one sentence, James. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it did get when you were saying that, because I was thinking, you know, with with a little bit of reticence, or you've got to be careful who you get rid of and so forth. But I think you're right. I think it requires a creative solution, a brave solution. And it is that cockroach principle, isn't it? Just because something or someone is ugly and you don't like the way it behaves and don't like the look of it doesn't mean it can't survive the absolute worst so you have to be a bit 
a bit brave sometimes. Absolutely. And if you're talking so much about the resilience of the ordinary Lebanese people, the men and women of the country, then I think it is time to give them a chance to to prove whether they can do what their political representatives and agents have failed uh, to do. And uh, on Friday this week, there is going to be a meeting of the European Union, a virtual meeting, in which the discussions are going to focus on three things, on the Eastern Mediterranean, Greece, Turkey, etc., on Belarusia and the violence there post the election, but also on Lebanon. And I really hope that the EU countries will not be taken in by this, oh, let's just stick a band-aid on this, throw in a few million uh, pounds or dollars, and then hopefully we'll forget this story or this problem for another uh, couple of years, because that is no longer uh, going to work. And uh, innovative solutions are necessary. We've reached a situation where post-wars, post-civil wars, post-internal assassinations, post the fact that there is one group that has the arms to control the destiny of uh, of Lebanon, we have to take all that together and try and mold it into a situation where we do not exclude anybody, but we also include the interests of the Lebanese themselves. And that means innovative Uh, competent solutions and I'll tell you something I know Lebanon well enough I mean I'm not Lebanese I don't hail from Lebanon so I'm not here doing a PR for Lebanon but uh, the Lebanon includes so many competent people of all communities and sects and religions Muslims, Druze, Christians Armenians, others it is time for them to put their heads together and say look Otherwise, and I'll conclude on this myself, James, this is something you wouldn't know either, that there is a somebody who is a fortune teller in Lebanon known as Michel Hayek. Michel Hayek always comes up at the end of every year. He's almost like reads the fortune cards or the cookie cards or whatever they call them about the future of Lebanon for the year ahead. And he's been talking quite a bit recently about the fortunes and the future of Lebanon post the blast, post everything else. And his predictions have been dire, have been bad, have been gloomy. So I want us in the West to help Lebanon and the real people of Lebanon to prove Michel Hayek wrong and to be able to give the people who are well-meaning people who've been in the streets proclaiming a new Lebanon, to give them the opportunity to shake up the system without excluding anybody. I don't want parties to be excluded. I don't want decision makers to be excluded. But I also want other people to be included so that once and for all, we go past warlords and past communities, which is what the Taif Agreement created after the Civil War, and really start thinking of Lebanon as a country of citizens, because once we start talking about citizenship and the rights and obligations of citizens, rather than the fact that I'm a Maronite, no, I'm an Armenian, no, I'm a Shia, no, I'm a Sunni, no, I'm a Druze, no, I'm a Greek Melkite, once we start doing this, 
it's going to keep the old story coming over and over again. And there is a limit to how much a failed state can remain failed state. It can either drift further south or somebody is going to come and pull it up and try and and help it. And I really hope that this will be the opportunity, the kairos, the light at the end of the tunnel, the silver lining on that cloud. Well, I can't say anything else, Harry, apart from that is the optimist in your pess optimist, I think. So um, I certainly hope that comes to pass. And why not? Why not hope for that? I hope uh, it works. Uh, James, you and I have got a decade almost of conversations we've had about the whole Middle East, North Africa and Gulf region. And we have often sort of seesawed between uh, optimism and pessimism so much so I think that you and I have actually decided a piss optimism is a good way, a safe way of describing the region because you're almost not taking sides. Whether it works or doesn't work, your piss optimism covers it. But I really hope that now with the people working, with the people putting all the effort in it, I hope that the international community will come and help rather than push in one direction or, or other. The Saudis wanting one thing, Iran wanting another thing, Syria playing its meddlesome role when it itself is uh, in ruins, and all the other countries trying uh, to do their own thing. Lebanon is no longer a colonial uh, state, but Lebanon is almost a failed state. So the question is, what do we want to see Lebanon become in the future? Will we prove Michel Haik right or will we prove him wrong? And on that note, Harry, have a decent remainder of the summer and do come back and talk to us in September. I know you're heading out to the region, various places. So um, whether we can answer that question or not is a, a debatable one. But um, hopefully we can speak again in September. Thank you very much, uh, James. Thank you for this very important conversation you and I have had and apology it's more of a monologue at times than a dialogue but you're kind enough to give me the opportunity to basically put my political wear on the table and in a sense hope that something good will come out of it and thank you also for using Fairuz's Libayrut in this uh, episode as well well let's listen to a little bit more thanks ever so much Harry I'm not going